0: Good morning. Welcome to Salem City Club. Glad you could join us today. I am Sharon Pearson. I'm the president of Salem City Club. Welcome to our last program of the 2020 informed Voter series. We hope you found the programs interesting and helpful. The program committee is working on programs to fill out our 54th year. In 2021, you can expect two programs each month all the way through May. City Club would not be able to present these programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. They are KMUZ Community Radio, Loujean Fulbert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. Thank you very much to our sponsors. Our members also play a critical role in helping Salem City Club continue its mission of promoting civic engagement. We're so grateful to those of you who have renewed your membership and given donations. If you're attending as a non-member, we hope you'll keep returning. If you're looking to get more involved in Salem City Club, give us a call or email us Our contact information is on the website. And now, here is our program lead, Bob Martin. He will introduce today's program and tell you about our speaker, Dr. Ed Dover. Good morning, Bob. You wanna turn your mic on, Bob?
1: How's that, better?
0: Yes, that's much better, thank you. (laughs)
1: Thanks. Aaron. All right, okay. have
0: a good program.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. It's my personal pleasure to welcome back Dr. Ed Dover, recently retired professor of political science and public administration at Western Oregon University. Ed is the fifth and final speaker in our Salem City Club 2020 Informed Voter Series. After one of the most, if not the most important, unusual, fascinating, confounding, contentious, and significant of modern presidential elections. Ed will perform his much anticipated and needed post-mortem on the 2020 election. He's well prepared for this task. In addition to teaching political science for nearly 40 years, he has studied and written and spoken extensively on American presidential elections. Ed has written six books dealing with presidential voting patterns, news coverage, television advertising, and election disputes. Say that last item, election disputes, should come in handy today. His most recent book is On Message, television advertising by the presidential candidates in 2008. Today, Ed will be speaking on three aspects of the recent election the outcome, meaning, and long-term significance of the presidential election, the congressional elections and the relationship to the presidential election, and the independence of the Oregon elections from the national pattern. Today is Ed's 10th election analysis for Salem City Club since 2000. Joining us now is Dr. Ed Dover Welcome back, Ed. There you are
2: my honor. you're on okay um i'd like to thank the salem city club for inviting me to return and speak about the elections uh, as bob said i've been doing this for 20 years i look forward to doing it and uh, certainly um, i hope that i can enlighten people about some of the features that have happened what i often do is to um, not necessarily try to repeat what you've uh um, In the media, but to give you an analysis that perhaps doesn't always reach those areas. For over the past century, starting in 1901 when Theodore Roosevelt took office, American presidential elections have been referendums on the incumbent. More than anything else, the primary issue in any election has been should the incumbent president get a second term? If the incumbent is retiring after two terms, the question is slightly different from that but very much the same thing and that is should the nominee of the president's party who promises a continuation of the president's policies and who is acting as a surrogate for the president be elected we call these in my field of political science candidate-centered campaigns in which the candidate more than the party is the most important feature this was a major change from the 19th century when political party was far more important than the individual. But the individual has replaced, the incumbent has replaced the party as the most important factor. This has occurred for two reasons. One of these is the expansion of the office of the presidency. It is simply a bigger office than it was uh, in the 18th and 19th century. We expect the president to do far more than previously. The country's bigger, their problems more complex, and we look to our for presidential leadership. And the second factor is the rise of electronic media, including radio, television, now internet, which has personalized the president and literally brought the president into people's living rooms. During the Roosevelt period, we saw three presidential elections that set the stage for what was to follow. In 1904, Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, ran for a full term in his own right. He had become president. Upon the assassination of William McKinley, Roosevelt was extremely popular and when he ran for president in 1904, as what I would call a strong incumbent, he swept to a massive landslide running far beyond the support of his fellow Republicans. This highly personal victory was a triumph of a strong incumbent who had built a great following. Four years later, when Roosevelt stepped aside, he urged one of his cabinet members, William Howard Taft, to run for president he helped him secure the Republican nomination campaigned for him extensively and Taft was elected this was unprecedented presidents simply did not try to pick their successor the Roosevelt did and Taft was his uh, surrogate but Taft was an unsuccessful president and four years later he was defeated in his bid for a second term losing to Democrat Woodrow Wilson these three elections a victory by a strong incumbent An election involving a surrogate incumbent and a defeat of a weak incumbent have been replicated in every election since that time. Over the last 100 years, we have seen 25 presidential elections. In 13 of those, slightly more than a majority, the incumbent president won a second term. In seven instances, when the incumbent president stepped aside after two terms, we saw the presidential party nominate someone who was either the vice president or a member of the cabinet and who worked as a surrogate. The results were mixed, but these elections include the four closest elections of the 20th century. And finally, our third category, election with a weak incumbent, and it includes 2020. Five times in the last 100 years, we have seen an incumbent president voted out of office. This explains the outcome of of this past year, for the fifth time in a century, for the first time in 28 years, the American people decided the incumbent president was not deserving of the second term and have voted Donald Trump out of office. The crucial factor of 2020 is that the issue was Donald Trump, and he he lost. Political scientists tend to look at elections as occurring at the nexus of two things. One are the short-term issues dealing with the incumbent president, his personality, and his appeal. But there's also a second factor, and this is partisanship. These are long-term factors that, while they may not be as important as they were, nonetheless provide a lens by which voters view the short-term events. So I'd like to focus on both of these, the short-term features of Donald Trump, and the long-term features of party and show how they connected in this election. First, Donald Trump was elected president four years ago in a somewhat unusual election. He acquired 46% of the popular vote. Now, that wasn't much different than his two immediate predecessors on the Republican ticket. For example, in 19, or in, in 2008, John McCain acquired 45% of the vote, and in 2012 Mitt Romney hit 47%, so Donald Trump's 46% was right about the middle of what the Republicans did. But McCain and Romney did not win. Trump did. Why? Because a large number of Democrats decided that they were not going to vote for their entire ticket. They engaged in what I like to call buffet voting, picking out and choosing members of their own party to vote for it while conveniently ignoring the others. This was a significant factor. Approximately 20% of those Democrats who had voted for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primaries simply did not vote for Hillary Clinton. Many of them leaving it blank, voting for third party candidates, or even not showing up. That loss of votes was extremely costly. And three states in the upper Midwest, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, each of which had gone Democratic for six consecutive presidential elections, by a very small margin, less than 1% in each state went for Trump. Donald Trump did not get any more votes in those three states than Mitt Romney did. But what he did get was a higher percentage of the vote in those states because of a lack of Democratic voting, and that carried him to the presidency. He received 306 electoral votes. Now, Donald Trump was not the first president to be elected with a limited amount of support, 46% many presidents have um, done about the same. Abraham Lincoln, for example, only had 40% in a four-way race when he won his first term. John F. Kennedy won the closest election of the 20th century. But many presidents have been able to expand their followings. In their term of office, they are able to bring about greater numbers of people. Kennedy, for example, while he wasn't won a close election, what should be kept in mind with Kennedy's very close election was that he f- expanded his following. One of the best predictors of how well a president will do in an election is his approval rating. And before he was assassinated, John Kennedy's approval rating was about 65%. Uh, He did not get a chance to win a landslide, but Lyndon Johnson, his successor, did by a little bit less than that margin. Ronald Reagan was elected with slightly more than 50% of the vote. Yet, four years later, Reagan won a second term with about 60%, a considerable expansion. But Donald Trump did not expand his following. He chose to be the president of 46% of the United States. He addressed the issues of the 46% who had supported him and demonized those who had not. He delivered what the 46% wanted, including for some tax cuts for well-to-do people, including a reduction of regulations on many businesses, which he wanted, including subsidies to certain industries, which again, some of his constituents wanted, the appointment of conservative judges of the Supreme Court, and in some instances, simply provided symbolic uh, awards to people by constantly denouncing people that they did not like, such as immigrants, Muslims, school teachers, schoolteachers, scientists uh, and others, including some undefined coastal elites that apparently had nothing to do with their time except spending looking down on Trump supporters. But all this time, Donald Trump did not attempt to reach out in any way and bring in other people. He alienated and angered the other 54%, treating them as cultural enemies. To show you the contrast of this, let's consider Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, um, during his, candid- during his presidency, certainly was able to excite people. One of the greatest speeches that Reagan ever gave was at the 40th anniversary of D-Day, which he made all Americans feel very proud of their country. And another great speech Reagan gave was shortly after the Challenger disaster, when he led the nation, united us in grief with an amazing level of uh, comments, with made, again, people feel proud. But Donald Trump could not resist using patriotic instances, using instances of American grief to simply attack his rivals. And this, again, led to him being a president of 46% of the American people. Well, now here's an interesting bit of irony about this campaign. Donald Trump was elected with 46% of the popular vote, acquired 306 electoral votes. This time, it appears that Donald Trump is going to get 46% of the popular vote. However, Joe Biden is going to get exactly 306 electoral votes. And perhaps an irony of numbers, Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States. Um, I don't know if we necessarily want to retire the number 46 and put it in the Smithsonian Institute, but I guess if there's going to be a movie made about Donald Trump, we might um, borrow from the Jackie Robinson movie and call this one 46. However, there was more to the Trump um, result than simply the 46% of the vote, because he may have done better in that than he would have otherwise. It's important to keep in mind that this was a general election, not just for president, but for one third of the United States Senate, every member of the House of Representatives, numerous members of the state legislature, governors, mayors, and uh, city councils, and a variety of other people. And because of this, there were many candidates, many Republicans who were working within their states, within their districts, within their cities, within their counties to urge people to vote and to vote Republican. The Republican Party during this campaign demonstrated a level of, of unity which we rarely see. Uh, at least we did not see that with the Democrats in um, uh, 2016. What we saw is a consistent level of party voting within the Republicans and this assisted Donald Trump. I'll give you some examples of this. Let's take Oregon. This year, there were five statewide races in Oregon, president United States Senator and three state offices, secretary of state state treasurer and attorney general. The Republican candidates varied significantly in their experience, In their qualifications, in their familiarity with voters, in their financing, in the ambition of their campaigns. Yet they all seem to do about the same. The strongest Republican on the ticket was not Donald Trump. Sometimes presidents are able to provide what are called coattails, and that is they are able to win by such a margin that they help other members of their party. Yet that did not happen. Kim Thatcher was the leading voter But on the other end, the weakest link in the Republican ticket was their candidate for the Senate, Joe Ray Perkins, who in many ways had limited money, credibility problems, and by the identified with the QAnon conspiracy, perhaps uh, a little bit of problems as well. Yet if we look at the votes, we will notice that there's a great similarity. Thatcher received about 975,000 votes, the strongest of any Republican, while Perkins received 900,000 votes, not far behind that, as they all were roughly the same. The other candidates, candidates for state treasurer and attorney general, uh, neither one of whom were well-funded or well-known, received about the same number of votes that Donald Trump received. In other words, if we look at the five candidates, we find that Donald Trump did not lead his party, he ran right in the middle of and the support for all of the other Republicans helped boost his totals. This was replicated in state after state after state. Donald Trump's best state was Wyoming. He attained 70% of the vote. Yet there were three statewide races in Wyoming for an open US Senate seat and for the state's one house seat. The three Republican candidates finished within 12,000 votes of one another with Donald Trump right in the middle. In Alaska, there was a race for the United States Senate Donald Trump finished 1,000 votes behind the Republican incumbent, Dan Sullivan, who was elected. Throughout the country, numerous Republicans who ran for the Senate, who ran for re-election, did better than Trump. We saw Susan Collins in Maine, Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, in North Carolina, Tom Tillis, David Perdue in Georgia, Lindsey Graham in South Carolina, Jody Ernst in Iowa. In state after state, Donald Trump trailed the Republican ticket. In state after state, the other Republicans did better than he did. And we have seen this in place after place after place. Donald Trump simply did not lead the Republican ticket. He was right in the middle of it. And that was, uh, a, um, in many ways, an indication of a general weakness, but also an indication of a strong support by his political party. Uh, there's an interesting metaphor that we sometimes use to describe election campaigns, and that is the horse race. Well, let's imagine a horse race. There's 12 horses running, Donald Trump is one of them, and at every part of the race, the beginning, the middle, and the end, he is in sixth place. That more or less describes how Donald Trump ran with respect to the Republican Party. Many of the people who supported Donald Trump were enthusiastic supporters of Donald Trump. Many of them had attended his rallies, Make America Great Again rallies. Many wore his red hats, And we're enthusiastic about it, but there are many other Republicans who had their reservations about Donald Trump, but nonetheless voted for him because, well, he's either better than the other party or it's a level of party loyalty. But it's important to understand when we look at Donald Trump's following that it is a combination of several factors. But that, in essence, is more or less what had happened in terms of the Donald Trump campaign. With this in mind, I'd like to look to the second place, and that is the role of political parties. The political parties that we have, the Republicans and the Democrats, have both been in existence, have dominated our electoral system for over a century and a half. Both parties existed uh, before the Civil War, the Democratic Party being formed in 1825, as we know it, and the Republicans in 1854. But those two parties have dominated American elections for some time. And many people identify with a the party. They vote for the same party year after year, they see that the party has provided them with a set of issues and views, and they exhibit, in many times, a great level of loyalty to what their party amounts to. The parties, over the course of time, shift their strengths and such, gaining votes in some places, losing them in somewhere else. There generally are areas of the country where the Democrats are strong, and there are other places in the country where the um, the Democrats Democrats may be weak, but both parties seem to have their differences. Today, it seems that the Democratic Party has become the party of urban America, particularly the large metropolitan areas. The Republican Party, in contrast, has become the party of small-town and rural America. And this is not only the pattern, but it is growing in terms of strength. In Oregon, for example, showing how we looked on a county-by-county basis, Multnomah County was overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. The two suburban counties at Portland, Clackamas and Washington, were also for Biden, but by a smaller amount. Lane County, Benton County solidly in favor of Biden. Marion County was interesting. Salem, voted heavily for Biden, yet the remainder of the county, as it turns out, voted for Trump, making this a very close county, but it did go for Biden. Deschutes County, Bend, went for Biden, but other areas simply went very heavily in favor of Donald Trump. His strongest counties were in Eastern Oregon, particularly Klamath and Lake County. Um, And this is a consistent pattern that's been going on for some time. We tend to think of the country as divided into blue states and red states. If you're not familiar with where that came from, that was the creation of NBC News, which for years would have a big electoral board showing how each state went, and they would color the Democrats blue and the Republicans red. So it was NBC News that picked the colors, not the parties, but that's what we have. But today we describe certain states as blue states and other states as red states. Well, throughout this campaign, there was a general consensus among pollsters, media people, and others that the country divided up by state into three clusters. One cluster of states, 20 of them, many of them small, had gone for Donald Trump in 2016 by more than 10 percentage points. They were generally considered to be safe for Trump, and he did carry them all. There were 20 other states in the District of Columbia that had gone for Hillary Clinton last time. And it was assumed that they would all go for Joe Biden, and they did. Finally, there were 10 states that were considered battleground states. Each of these had gone for Donald Trump, but each of them by less than 10%, ranging anywhere from a half a percent to about 8%. But these 10 states were where the battle was fought. Why these 10 states, why do they stand out? It is because they have a certain mix of urban versus rural, it makes them competitive. California, for example, is an extremely urban state and it goes democratic, but there are rural areas and those rural areas went for Donald Trump. Uh, Other states such as Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota have no large urban areas and consistently went for Donald Trump. Other states are mixed. uh, That is more urban or less urban, but that is the crucial factor. And those 10 states have that mix between the two of them at the end of the campaign the polls indicated of the 10 states that three of them pennsylvania wisconsin and michigan would likely go for joe biden That three others texas ohio and iowa would likely go for donald trump and the other four north carolina georgia florida and arizona were too close to call Well, the three that Biden was supposed to carry, he did. The three that Trump was supposed to carry, well, he did. And of the four that were questionable, close, two of them, Georgia and Arizona, went for Biden, and the other two, North Carolina and Florida, went for Trump. They split them five apiece. And so, again, it was the question of urban versus rural. To uh, indicate where things are going, Today, in this country, the urban areas are developing quite rapidly. This is the area where the greatest amount of population growth is occurring. But it isn't simply a city. It also is the nature of the city. Uh, There's an interesting way to remember where the Democrats do best. There's Democratic number, the the abbreviation for Democrat is D. So think of the letter D. That would be areas of density, diversity, diversity and diplomas. By density, we're talking about large areas. By diversity, a large number of people who are not necessarily white, persons of color, immigrants, a variety of background and degree. There is a significant educational difference this election, more than there ever has been, between the support for the two candidates. CBS News conducted in-depth surveys in every state, which they published around election day. In Oregon, the results concerning education are Astonishing. Of those persons who have a high school education or less, 62% voted for Donald Trump. Of those who have some college but not a degree, or if they have a degree, it's an AA degree, Associate of Arts, 57% voted for Biden. Of those persons with bachelor's degrees, 67% for Biden. And of those persons with advanced degrees, that is, masters, PhD, medical, law. for Biden. And this is a pattern that has resurfaced in all parts of the United States. Donald Trump's strongest support has generally come from white men with a high school education. Well, Isaac Newton had an interesting thought. Uh, One of his laws of motion was that for every action, there's an opposing reaction. And as Donald Trump, in his efforts to rally his 46%, appealed in particular to men with a high school education, the reaction was another group of people, women with advanced degrees, turned against him as he lost significant ground among educated women from what Republicans had pulled in previous elections. With this in mind, um, I'd like to move on to show you how this works out in terms of uh, Congress The United States Senate is about evenly split. Right now, there are 50 um, Republicans. uh, Actually, the uh, the Republican Party holds 53 seats today and 47 are Democratic. The Democrats appear to have gained one seat, which means it'll be 50 to 48, with two Republican seats undecided. In Georgia, a candidate has to have 50% of the vote to win, well, in two Senate races in Georgia, the Republican took 49, the Democrat 48, and the rest were for other candidates. So there will be two runoff elections in Georgia for Republican seats to be held on January 5th. If the Democrats take both seats, that'll make it 50 to 50, with Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris splitting the vote, which means that the Democratic Party would be the majority party in the Senate. So if you were of the opinion that Mitch McConnell is headed for another term as majority leader, well, that's not going to be decided until January 5th. In the house of representatives the democratic party took control two years ago by winning 43 seats from the republicans all of them in suburban areas while losing three rural areas it appears that most of those have returned to the same pattern looks like republicans may have picked up five or six of those but not very much but in general this is the same pattern now i'd like to look at oregon and show you what we've done here in oregon Uh, I like to use the State House of Representatives as an indication of partisanship in Oregon because of two reasons. I prefer to use it rather than the State Senate because, first, there are more seats, 60, as opposed to 30 State Senate seats. And also, we elect the House every two years. But from the time I moved to Oregon in 1987 until 2010, or through 2010, the State House was evenly split. One time, the Democrats might have a majority of one or two seats, and the Republicans might have a majority of one or two seats. At the end of 2010, it was 30 Republicans and 30 Democrats. At that point, the Democratic Party began to gain. The Democratic Party began to strengthen its support as it um, picked up four seats in suburban Portland in 2012. It added another seat in suburban Salem, Paul Evans' seat, District 20, in the next election, and it added another seat in 2016, um, Salem and Woodburn, Teresa Leon's seat. In the next election, the Democratic Party added three more seats in suburban Portland. And in this election, the Democrats added Bend, which is a rapidly growing area. But the Democratic Party in Oregon has gained, um, a grand total of 10 suburban seats in the last five elections. Meanwhile, it has lost three rural seats, um, in this election, it lost a seat in Columbia County, the Coos County area, uh, while picking up one in Deschutes County. But the Democrats have gained 10 uh, urban seats while losing three rural seats, giving them a 37 to 23 margin. The same pattern has hold true in the State Senate. In the State Senate, um, for years, House District 19, which is southern, southeastern Salem and areas south of that, or District 20, which is the western part of Salem, and west of that, were Republican seats. And Senate District 10, represented by Jackie Winters, combined these two to a Republican seat. But first, District 20 went Democratic, District 19 is becoming less Republican, and in this election, as is followed in numerous elections throughout the state, is that uh, District 10 went Democratic with the victory by Deb Patterson, giving the Democrats a seat. Unfortunately for the Democrats, they lost a seat in rural Oregon, so their margin is 18 to 12. In 2010, it was 15 to 15, and the Democrats have added six Senate seats, again, in the suburban regions. But that is what is happening in Oregon, which is very consistent with what's happening in the U.S. Congress, and it is what is consistent with what is happening at the level of the presidential election. So that is where we have seen uh, the nature of this election. Uh, I would like to conclude uh, by emphasizing one final point that is a a factor in this election, which we have not seen before, and that is the pandemic. And we have seen a large number of people voting by mail. This has created some confusion. Now in Oregon, because we've been voting by mail for a quarter century, we've had no problems. But many states, this is new to them. They've only used absentee ballots, and many times absentee ballots are limited in number. There aren't that many people who've used them. Uh, often, people who are outside the country, or ill, or immobile and cannot reach the polls, and so most states were simply prepared to handle a few thousand absentee ballots. This time, great numbers of people decided to use them, and Donald Trump decided to make an issue out of it, saying that absentee ballots are susceptible to fraud, which is highly a questionable point. But what we saw was a massive number of use of absentee ballots, particularly by Democrats. To illustrate just how widespread this was, approximately 150 people, pardon me, approximately 150 million people voted for president in this election. 100 million of them voted early. Only 50 million voted on Election Day. Two-thirds of the vote had been cast before dawn on Election Day. And of that 100 million, two-thirds of them, about 65 million, voted absentee. More people voted by absentee ballot this year than voted on Election Day nationwide. Now, of course, those votes have to be counted. They have to be processed. The county clerk has to determine whether those votes are signed, whether they are legitimate, whether they've been postmarked, um, and so on. It does take time. Many states allow this to happen as soon as the ballots arrive. County clerks start processing ballots as soon as they arrive on Election Day. They're ready to count them. But some states did not have that, and in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, states in which the Republican Party controls the legislature, they decided in those three states that they would, uh, for the most part, uh, not uh, give earlier time to count the absentee ballots. In Pennsylvania, they could not start processing absentee ballots at the county clerk's office until 8 a.m. on election day. And, of course, the clerks had too much to do running the polls, so they simply waited until the next day. This created an illusion, the illusion that Donald Trump was winning. At the end of the evening, on November 3rd, Donald Trump was leading in a great number of states. He had a 662,000 vote lead in Pennsylvania, 300,000 vote lead in Georgia, 300,000 vote lead in Michigan, and so on. But then the absentee ballots started coming in, and in Pennsylvania, they were over 80% Democratic. Little by little, Trump's lead diminished state after state until eventually five states where he was leading on election night moved over to Joe Biden and this occurred. This becomes a surprise to people, but Pennsylvania was not the state with the largest number of absentee ballots. California and New York were far ahead of those. Why didn't we put attention on those two? Because they were solid for Biden and it didn't create much in the line outcome. But this is what has happened, is that we saw the absentee ballots coming in uh, and that is why Biden did take the lead as he did. Now, in the electoral vote, Joe Biden acquired every state that Hillary Clinton carried and five more. They were the three upper Midwestern states of Pennsylvania, Michigan and Wisconsin, as they expected. But two other states, Atlanta, pardon me, Georgia and Arizona. I want to talk about those two states because those two states are an indication of what may be occurring in this country in the future. Both of these states have a long history of being Republican. The last time Georgia went for a Democrat was when they went for their home state candidate, Jimmy Carter. But they have been a Republican state for a long time. Arizona is another Republican state. In fact, Arizona only went Democratic once since the end of the Second World War. And that was in 1996 when Ross Perot drew so many Republican votes that Bill Clinton was able to slip through with about 40-plus percent of the vote and win but he could not repeat that after uh, in subsequent years but those two states have consistently been republican strongholds but those two states are rapidly growing and growing with a combination of diversity as well as diplomas in arizona 60% of the population now lives in the greater phoenix area in Georgia, over 60% of the population lives in the greater Atlanta area. Those are two rapidly growing cities and becoming increasingly democratic. They have helped elect Democrats to Congress. They have helped elect Democrats to the Senate, and they have helped now with presidents. The two of them both voted overwhelmingly for Biden, which is what gave Biden narrow wins in Arizona and in Georgia. What is occurring may very much be what happened in Oregon. Oregon used to be a Republican state. In the first 10 elections after the Second World War, Oregon went Republican except once. But in 1988, Oregon by a close margin went Democratic. It has gone Democratic ever since then and usually by wider and wider margins. That is because the Democratic areas are growing and the Republican areas are not. And that is the general pattern that we've seen. Joe Biden won his election in the metropolitan areas Of the fastest-growing parts of the United States, Donald Trump acquired his support in the areas that have not been growing. So in conclusion, what I would like to say um, in summarizing what occurred in this election, this was a personal referendum on Donald Trump. And the American people, particularly those in large, urban, rapidly-growing areas, found him to be wanting and rejected him. And because of that, Donald Trump is going to be a one-term president. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Ed. Um, I'm Cindy Condon and I'll be the moderator for the Q&A today. So um, thanks so much for that terrific in-depth commentary on on an election to remember, certainly. And hopefully it'll all be over soon. So we know most of our listeners and watchers, viewers are experienced Zoomers by now and know how to ask questions of our speaker. For this Q&A portion of the program, All of those people registered and logged in on a device have a raise hand button or should have a raise hand button at the bottom of your screen. If you have a question you would like to ask Ed, please click on the button to raise your hand and I will call on people as I can. Your microphone will be activated when called on, but you must click on your microphone icon to be heard and ask your question. Given our limited time and as is our custom, please ask a question rather than comment on what Ed has presented. This is much the same as our large program format. If you are joining by telephone, please press star nine to raise and lower your hand to ask a question and star six to mute and unmute your phone. I've got some um, uh, questions already asked um, and they have come in through the Q and A icon. And Chief Cowan, in the current never-before-seen Trump appeal to his base only, election process controversy, failure to concede, etc. do you see this as a realistic threat to our democracy, or do you see the deeply rooted American three branches of government and the layers of state controls stopping a move to dictatorship? So,
2: I'm not that worried about dictatorship. I do think Donald Trump has a problem with accepting defeat. Um, I think that he just cannot face up to the fact that he lost the election. Um, I think this has been reflected in a lot of his behavior. He has not been willing to listen to advisors who disagree with him. He has not been willing to accept the legitimacy of people who don't see his views. He, I think, needs this um, agreement. And I think it is a real hurt that I don't think he imagined he could lose. I think when he saw his crowds of people, he thought everybody loves me. And well, what he didn't take into account is not everybody's in those crowds. And I don't think he had that idea to realize. I think our democracy is safe. Uh, I think that um, clearly there are many problems with it, areas where it doesn't work. Uh, For example, as I, I said at the Salem City Club some time ago, Is that all of these battles right now over recounts and lawsuits would not occur if we did not have the electoral college? And if we ended up getting a direct popular vote, this thing would have been over a week ago. Um, But um, while there are structural problems, I think our democracy is safe. And I don't think Donald Trump can end it.
3: Okay, thanks for that reassuring answer. So, from Neil P., what is the future of Oregon Republican ideology? Where is it going? Where is it going, toward Trump populism or toward traditional business conservatism?
2: I think it's heading in the Trump direction. And the reason I think that is taking place is that um, the business world is itself in transition. Uh, We're finding that many younger business people are more inclined to be democratic. We're finding that a great number of business managers, particularly in corporations, are increasingly coming in with graduate degrees, and as I mentioned, are more likely to uh, favor the Democratic Party. So I see that as uh, somewhat in transition. We're also seeing, however, is that Donald Trump particularly has brought in this populism, as we call it, uh, has, at one time it was kind of spread about, across both parties. He's consolidated into his own party. So I see it going in that direction. And I think also, I don't think he's going to leave politics. We've had many instances where one-term presidents have found something else to do and have done it well. William Howard Taft later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Jimmy Carter founded the Carter Foundation and ultimately won a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. That will not be Donald Trump. Donald Trump is going to, I think, fight it. I think he'll run again. Um, I think he will keep uh, a solid base of the populist group within the party and will ultimately prevent any business-oriented Republicans winning the nomination. And I think we'll see more business Republicans moving away from the party.
3: Okay, thank you for that. And Jan Margozian has a question. So Jan, you have the floor and please remember to unmute your mic.
0: Thank you, Cindy. And Ed, I'm so glad that you're back uh, to Salem City Club. Uh, With the Electoral College being front and center these days, Uh, What do you see as its future? Do you see total abolishment? Do you see an update to the 21st century? Or do you see a combination of maybe the Electoral College and the popular vote?
2: I think the Electoral College will remain because the Republican Party believes, and I think they're correct in this, it gives them a competitive advantage. If we had direct popular vote, uh, Joe Biden's up by about 5 million votes, not even close. And Hillary Clinton won by about 2 million votes. It wasn't very close there. And so that is going to be a factor, but the Republican party has won two elections, 2000 and 2016, with a minority of the popular vote. The only way I think we're going to get rid of the electoral college is that the Republican party is going to have to be on the short end. That almost happened in 2004, George W. Bush beat John Kerry in the popular vote and the electoral vote, but at Ohio, which was very close gone for Kerry, Kerry would have been president. And if that had happened, which would create a great irony of Mr. Bush. He would have been elected. with a, He would have been the loser of the popular vote and win, and then win the popular vote and lose. I think we've seen both parties throw it out. It had been gone by 2008. But I don't see that happening unless the Republican Party ends up losing an election through the Electoral College.
3: Thank you, Ed. And now Michael Dwayne Brown has a question. So Michael, just remember to unmute your mic. <coughs> Excuse me. My question,
2: I'm sorry, is about requiring the president, Congress, and Supreme Court to serve in office in a nonpartisan capacity. Uh, In other words, they need to resign from their party affiliation, refrain from party activity, including caucuses, but not requiring them to change any of their underlying beliefs. Well, I think the idea of of nonpartisan I think one of the things that perhaps if we do something nonpartisan, simply require that somebody not be involved in politics, but I'm not sure that nonpartisan necessarily means nonpartisan. I want to give an example of this, and this is Monmouth. I I live just a little bit west of Monmouth and uh, taught there for a number of years in the the city. There was an interesting election in Monmouth this year for mayor and city council. Uh, Monmouth chooses its three, its city council citywide as opposed to by districts, and so there were Three seats and probably about 10 candidates running. But what was interesting, if you go by houses around there and you see a whole selection of yard signs, you'd see a Biden sign, and then you'd see a sign for the Democratic candidate for the legislature, the Democratic, I mean, the House, Democratic candidate for the Senate, Democratic candidate for a state office, a candidate for mayor, several candidates for the city council. Well, I guess that's a Democratic House. And then you go to another house and you see a, a, Biden, I mean, a Trump sign, and a sign for Republicans for state office, Republicans for the legislature, a different candidate for mayor, different candidates for the city council. Um, I don't live in Monmouth, but I knew the Democrats and the Republican candidates for mayor and the city council simply by the yard signs and their approximation. So I, I don't know whether that really does much. Uh, what I think is important is that we require people to stay out of politics. And I think one place I would like to say, I, I covered this in a book that I wrote on the Florida vote controversy, is that one of the unfortunate things in this country is that we we'll let the people who count the votes be partisan. Even if we elect a secretary of state or a county clerk on partisan ballots, it should be in law everywhere that they cannot in any way participate in partisan politics. And One of the unfortunate things was that in 2000, the Secretary of State of Florida was also George W. Bush's campaign manager. That is a conflict of interest. And I think we should do what we do with what we call the Hatch Act for federal employees. If you are in a certain position, you cannot be involved in partisan politics, even if you are a Democrat or Republican.
3: Now we have a question from George Dyer. What role did undervotes play in the election and the direction politics is heading?
2: I don't think the undervotes were very important. This time I know, as I mentioned earlier that they really hurt Hillary Clinton four years ago with a lot of people that Democrats did not vote for. But I uh, think that what I've seen is that the number of votes cast for for candidates, like I gave the example of Oregon, all the Republicans are about the same, just a handful of votes separating Uh, the weakest from the strongest, Democrats the same way. But I think this was an election in which people voted. They voted all the way. Um, I think this is uh, significant. Um, We might see undervotes in a number of races that people don't really understand. Um, I noticed four years ago, we had an interesting Madeline Polk County when a county commissioner seat was decided by 11 votes. There were 6,000 non-voters in that. People who voted for president simply passed on county commissioner. But I don't think at the top level or Congress, uh, that was a
3: factor. Okay, thank you. And now Barb McCullough-Jones has a question. How do you think declining wages and increasing poverty might affect future elections?
2: Uh, I think that's going to be a major factor. And I think another factor is going to be important is whether government can actually respond. We have a, a problem with our separation of power system is that we as a country through separation of powers, Seem incapable of addressing problems. Um, the separation of power system was designed to prevent a dictatorship, and it certainly does. But it also frustrates the uh, creation of problems. And it was certainly a terrible thing in 2008 when the Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said the number one goal is to make sure that Barack Obama is a one-term president. No, the what he should have said is that the number one agenda is get us out of this recession, and we will present the Republican point of view and meet with the Democrats, and maybe we'll come up with a solution. But this idea that um, we're against the Affordable Care Act simply because um, it's a Democratic idea is is not going to work. And we're not going to be able to address the problems of salaries until we have a bipartisan approach in Congress, which increasingly does not seem to work well. And I think what we'll see are more frustration. Many of the people who Uh, working class people who back Donald Trump are doing so because they see their life opportunities declining. They see industry shutting down. They see their wages falling. They see limited opportunities. They're not sure who's at fault. And he was willing to blame everybody else. It's the immigrants, it's the Muslims, it's the intellectuals. But uh, I think you're going to see a lot of scapegoating. But I, I think this is an issue that needs to be addressed. We have to do something about falling wages. I want to add one thing to that. Um, We have a continuing battle over the Affordable Care Act. I think that the um, um, America's health care finance system is, to use a term from science, a financial black hole that runs the risk of destroying the American economy. Uh, We need to do something in which we're not treating health care as a consumer product, which is what we are doing, and we need to get past that. it's not a consumer product. It's not the same thing as taking an ocean cruise. You know, if you can afford one, I guess you take one. If you can't, too bad. We seem to do that far too well with health care. If you can afford a doctor, have one. If not, too bad. That will not work.
3: Okay, thank you. And Anita Sofeld has a question. So, Anita, if you can um, unmute your mic.
0: I am sorry. I didn't mean to say I had a question. I apologize. Okay, no,
3: um, so no question,
0: no question, no.
3: Okay, so then we'll go to Marcia Kelly, who's put in a question, we need broadband in many rural areas, and that would help areas in economic development. Can you explain why many Republicans voted against the cell phone tax to fund broadband in Oregon.
2: Well, I think a lot of it goes with the ideology. The Republican Party is not particularly favorable on government doing things. This has been a part of the ideology for some time. um, And consequently, um, um, this is something that uh, clearly uh, needs to be done. In fact, you mentioned about rural areas. I live in a rural area, and when uh, we started seeing meetings moving to Zoom, we did not have that capacity. Uh, We eventually uh, had to change Internet providers and such, but... uh, for the most part, yes, broadband is something that um, clearly needs to be done, but I think that part of it is that, um, the role of government. I think there were more willing to have a private sector do it.
3: Okay, thank you. And now from Evan uh, Source, I think that's right for the last name. From your analysis, I interpret Republican down-ballot success to hyper-partisanship, not only messaging problem problem from the Democratic Party. Any comments on that?
2: Um, I think that the Republican Party was able to generate... Yes, it was partisan, and there was a lot of t- uh, ticket voting, as I've seen, from top to bottom. They seem to be very very close, very close together. Uh, yes, I think, if anything, what had happened, as I mentioned, is that it was the down-ballot voting that actually propped up Donald Trump, that he was able to rely on a lot of efforts by state and local Republican organizations and they organized, built the vote, identified people, Uh, made sure they voted, made sure they got their votes together. Yes, I think it was that. And I think it was the partisanship. We saw a very partisan election in a lot of ways at the local level, uh, seeing a consistent pattern uh, at the state and other places. Yes, I, I agree with what Evan said.
3: Yes, thanks. And Tom has a question. So Tom, you have the floor. And if you could please unmute your mic. Tom, can you unmute your mic? Okay, we will move on to David McMillan, who has a question. What role, if any, do you think racism played in this election?
2: Uh, I would say that racism did. Uh, For one thing, I think that Donald Trump uh, appealed to racism. Um, I think some of his appeals were overt, and I think he clearly was there. Uh, He was uh, certainly has proven that he was friendly uh, to white supremacists, and I think that took a a factor there. So, yes, I would say there's a racist vote. However, I want to also say something. Um, We should not look on every vote for Donald Trump as a vote from a racist, because there were many, many Republicans who are appalled at racism who voted for Donald Trump. Yes, I think that Trump, and to some extent, some Republicans have um, emphasized the race question, and there was some vote there, Uh, but um, I don't think that was everything, and I don't think it was all of it. I think it was a part of it, but certainly not the majority of the Trump support.
3: Okay, thank you, and I think we have time for one last question. So, Tom, we'll come back to (laughs) you, and I think you're you're unmuted, so go ahead and ask your question.
2: I'm I'm unmuted now.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: exactly. I'd appreciate it if you if you address the polls. The polls, the last two elections have not uh, been as accurate as we would like to have them be. With caller ID, I never answer the phone if I don't recognize the number, and they don't leave a message. Is that does that make polling more difficult now? Uh, yes, it does. There's a few things I want to say about the polls, kind of the, the middle ground on what we've heard. To start with, the polls were not as inaccurate as they appear to be. Um, in 2016 uh many people got the impression that hillary clinton had the thing locked up but they were dealing with polls that were taken weeks earlier and donald trump closed the gap and at the end of the election trump was uh, only about two percentage points behind clinton which is what the popular vote was uh what was off were a number of the state polls which missed them and they missed them primarily because of turnout or lack of it on the part of the democrats second this time they actually were much more accurate one of the things that's a little misleading right now is that we have not finished counting all the votes. And we have, uh, even though Pennsylvania had a lot of votes, New York and California had far more. And as those votes come in, we're seeing that the percentage that was predicted is becoming closer and closer. The final average on national polls was 52% for Biden and 45% for Trump. Right now it's about, Biden's likely to get 51 plus, and Trump is likely to get a little more than 46, so they weren't more than about a point off. And I I think that those are fairly accurate. And the states were right on. Um, As I mentioned, the 10 states, New York Times polling average, uh, which I looked at, showed that uh, they gave up on 40, said they're too close to call, and they didn't call for them, but all the others, 46 out of 46 were correct. And so I I think they're more accurate than happening. But yes, one of the real problems with polling is that a lot of people simply will not answer the phone or take part. And they are often unrepresentative, very unrepresentative, in which we tend to get a larger number of older people, more likely to get white people, more likely to get small town people. And so as a result of that, they would show a bias. So one of the features of polling, very important, and this is why some polls are far more accurate than others, is it is important to weight the numbers. Each number is multiplied by an equation and indicating uh, how this would work out. For example, just to use uh, an illustration, if I knew that, uh, say, two thirds of the people in a community were members of the Mormon church and one third were Catholic, and I was taking a poll on religion, and half the people that responded were Mormon, half responded Catholic, I knew that would not be representative. So I would take the Mormon vote and double it. And I weighting it like that, I would get a approximate of the way that would work out. And that's what happens. So it is an art to, be able, or a good, uh, art to be able to know how to weight these things. And some polls are terrible. They don't know how to weight them at all. And they're so far off base. Uh, others are very good. They're just spot on. And so I think a lot of it, it depends on the poll you take. Some of those are, I just call them garbage polls. And there's plenty of them around. But I think that there are certain ones and I have a few polls that I have tremendous respect for and follow them. And believe it or not, one of them is Fox News, which I think is a very good polling outfit even though I don't agree with their uh, editorial people.
3: Well, great, thank you for that, Ed. And thank you all for your questions. I'm afraid we've run out of time. So, and this is our last program in our informed voter series. Some of us may be taking uh, breathing a sigh of relief that it the series is over, but the election is will be over soon. And hopefully you will join us in December, on December 11th for a very different pro- program featuring poets in Salem, But with that, I'll turn it over to Sharon uh, to close out the program. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Cindy. And thank you very much, Ed. That was an extremely interesting program we are uh, so grateful that you're willing to take your uh, talents and, and give them to Salem City Club to uh, learn about what happens with these elections. As Cindy suggested, uh, our next program coming up is on December 11th. Uh, it will be 2020, the year in fewer words. We will have several poets sharing their uh, writings and perspectives on this tumultuous year that we've just lived through. We hope you will join us. You can uh, register on our website or you'll get the usual emails, you know, by and by. (laughs) So we wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving and uh, we will see you in a few weeks. Thank you, have a wonderful day.